0: Well, this evening, I want to read uh, from the Heidelberg and the Westminster, um, both of uh, the catechetical lessons that have to do with the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. The Heidelberg Catechism lesson is question and answer 123, and you can find that on page 895, 895, question 123, page 895. What does the second petition mean? Your kingdom come means rule us by your word and spirit in such a way that more and more we submit to you. Preserve and increase your church. Destroy the devil's work. Destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. Do all this until your kingdom fully comes when you will be all in all. And then turn put, uh, forward to page 976. 976. Question and answer 102. What do we pray for in the second petition? In the second petition which is thy kingdom come we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom <clears throat> excuse me and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened Well these two Catechism questions really help us understand the second petition, or at least get a beginning at understanding uh, the second petition. When we pray, your kingdom come, first, these uh, catechetical lessons remind us that there's a personal application. We're praying, Lord, subdue my stubborn heart. And bring it in line with your kingdom priorities. Help me to submit more and more of my life to you and to walk in greater obedience to your word. There's also a corporate application to the second petition. We're praying for the expansion of the kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel. That all those who are appointed to everlasting life will be brought into the church. And that the Lord would preserve the church and continue to grow it. And while I'm not going to elaborate more on this this evening, it's it's worth pointing out that the catechism draws a very close connection between the kingdom and the church. And we actually live at a time where theologians don't want to see that closeness. They want to see kingdom as something quite different and quite outside the church, but that's simply not how the reformers thought of it. Certainly the kingdom is broader than the church because the kingdom of God as we think about it in our time and space has to do with all that Christ reigns over and Christ reigns over all. But ground zero for Christ's kingdom work in the world is the church. And so one of the things we're praying for in the second petition is for the Lord to bless, preserve, Strengthen and grow the church. And then, third, when we pray your kingdom come, there's actually a cosmic aspect to this petition. We're asking the Lord to stop the advances of the devil's kingdom in its tracks and that he would fully and finally destroy Satan's kingdom on earth, that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. Again, I love the language of the Heidelberg at this point. In the second petition, we're praying to God to destroy the devil's work, destroy every force which revolts against you, and every conspiracy against your holy word. You see, this is not what we would call kinder and gentler prayer. We are asking God to work powerfully in his sovereign purposes to push back, defend out wickedness and the enemies of Christ's kingdom, and specifically his church. And we need to remember, this is one of the reasons, one of the reasons for which the Lord Jesus came into the world. We're told in 1 John 3, 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil's been sinning from the beginning. The reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of, of the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And every force that revolts against God and His Word, we want destroyed. And when we pray the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, we're, we're at prayer, we're asking God to hasten that judgment. Or said in a different way, we're praying, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This evening, when we return to our study in 2 Kings, we're going to see a type of destroyer. His name is King Jehu. But for now, let's continue uh, praising the Lord, standing to sing number 411. Shout for the blessed Jesus reigns, 411. Well, let me ask you to open your Bibles, please, to 2 Kings 9. 2 Kings 9, a rather long section. We're going to go ahead and read the whole chapter, and we may get through it, or we may not. Second <laughs> no. Kings 9, beginning in verse 1. This is the true and infallible word of our God. And Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, get yourself ready, take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. Now when you arrive at that place, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and make him rise up from among his associates and take him into an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not delay. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he arrived, there were the captains of the army sitting. And he said, I have a message for you, commander. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, commander. Commander. Then he arose and went into the house and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel for the whole house of Ahab shall perish. And I will cut off from Ahab all the males, excuse me, all the males in Israel, both bond and free. So I'll make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel. And there shall be none to bury her. And he opened the door and fled. Then Jehu came out to the servants of his master, and one said to him, Is all well? Why did this madman come to you? And he said to them, You know the man and his babble. And they said, A lie, tell us now. So he said, Thus and thus he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then each man hastened to take his garment and put it under him on the top of the steps, and they blew trumpets saying, Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. Now Joram had been defending Ramoth Gilead, he and all Israel, against Hasael, king of Syria. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to recover from the wounds which the Assyrians had inflicted on him when he fought with Hasael, king of Syria. And Jehu said, if you're so minded, let no one leave or escape from the city to go and tell it in Jezreel. So Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel, for Joram was laid up there and Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see Joram. Now a watchman stood on the tower in Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came and said, I I see a company of men. And Joram said, get a horseman and send him to meet him and let him say, is it peace? So the horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. So the watchman reported saying the messenger went back to them but he's not coming back. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to him and came to them and said, "Thus says the king, is it peace?" And Jehu answered, "What have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me." So the watchman reported saying, "He went up to them and is not coming back." And the driving It's like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for he drives furiously. That's the first fast and furious. Then Joram said, make ready. And his chariot was made ready. Then Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out, each in his chariot. And they went out to meet Jehu and met him on the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. Now it happened when Joram saw Jehu, that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? So he answered, What peace? As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcraft are so many. Then Joram turned around and fled and said to Ahaziah, Treachery, Ahaziah. Now Jehu drew his bow with full strength and shot Jehoram between his arms and the arrow came out at his heart and he sank down in his chariot. And Jehu said to Bidkar, his captain, pick him up and throw him into the tract of the field of Naboth, the Jezreelite. For remember when you and I were riding together behind Ahab, his father, that the Lord laid this burden upon him. Surely I saw yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord. And I will repay you in this plot, says the Lord. Now therefore take and throw him on the plot of ground according to the word of the Lord. But when Ahaziah, king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the road to Beth-hagon. So Jehu pursued him and said, shoot him also in the chariot. And they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is by Ibleam. Then he fled to Megiddo and died there. The servants carried him in the chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in his tomb with his father's In the city of David, in the 11th year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah had become king over Judah. Now when Jehu had come to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it and she put paint on her eyes and adorned her head and looked through a window. Then as Jehu entered at the gate, she said, is it peace, Zimri, murderer of your master? And he looked up at the window and said, who's on my side, who? Who? So two or three eunuchs looked out at him, and he said, throw her down. So they threw her down, and some of her blood spattered on the wall and on the horses, and he trampled her underfoot. And when he had gone in, he ate and drank, Then he said, go now, see to this accursed woman and bury her, for she was a king's daughter. So they went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore they came back and told him and he said this is the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite saying on the plot of ground at Jezreel dogs shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as refuse on the surface of the field in the plot at Jezreel so that they shall not say here lies Jezebel. Well, the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. May bless it to our hearts this evening. Nearest congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, before we jump into this rather long passage, it'll be helpful, I think, to first step back in history to about 20, 25 years before this text. At that time, Ahab was king of Israel and Elijah had been raised up by God to be his chief prophet. You'll remember when we were studying uh, sort of the life of Elijah that he most definitely was a mighty man of God. He burst on the scene back in 1 Kings 17 and, and at that moment he stood toe to toe with Ahab and he announced judgment on Ahab and Israel because of their idolatry and because of their immorality. The judgment of God was that there would be no rain for three plus years. And then when those three and a half years were passed and in, in 1 Kings 18, Elijah again peered to Ahab and, and he announced Now God's mercy is going to be displayed. The drought will be over. Immediately after those events, God's prophets stood against the 450 prophets of Baal. And then eventually presided over their execution. So Elijah was a mighty man of God. And think about this. God had worked powerfully through his ministry in such a way that it should have been clear to Ahab and to all of Israel that Yahweh is the only true living God. He controlled the weather. He destroyed Baal's prophets. And Elijah almost certainly thought this this would lead to, to national repentance, but it didn't. And as the prophet this mighty man of God contemplated idolatry and wickedness that was pervasive in Israel. It crushed him. And when Ahab's wife Jezebel set out to have him assassinated, it was more than he could endure. And he fled from her. If I can use a colloquial description, Elisha was burned out. And so he, he fled and he was at Mount Horeb. And at Mount Horeb, Yahweh came to him and, and the Lord's compassion was on display when he ministered tenderly to his prophet and restored him. And in 1 Kings 19, when Yahweh sent Elisha, excuse me, Elijah back to Israel, he was given a very specific task he was to anoint Hasael to be king over Syria. He was to anoint Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to be the king of uh, Israel. I'm sorry, yeah, Hazael the king of Syria, Jew, Jehu, the king of Israel, and Elisha to replace him as God's chief prophet. And of course, they all have respective tasks. Elisha will call Israel's kings and Israel's people to repentance. And he will announce the judgment that will follow apart from that repentance. And both Hosea and Jehu are instruments of God's judgment. Now, as we make the transition between 2 Kings 8 and 2 Kings 9, again, now we're about 20 years in the future. All three of these figures Elisha, Hasael, and Jehu are being used by God to execute judgment. And what we're going to see in 2 Kings 9 and 2 Kings 10 is that Jehu, in particular, is God's avenger. He becomes the tip of the spear in fulfilling a host of judgment oracles that were made through the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Over and over, they warned people because of the idolatry. They warned people because of false worship. They warned people because of their immorality. And in those warnings, there were judgment oracles for the great sin. And Jehu will be the instrument God uses to bring about judgment. In Hebrews 10, 30 and 31, it says, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And the living God is going to use Jehu, his avenger, to put many of those who promoted idolatry into Israel right into his hands Now I'm going to break this passage up under four headings. First, we're going to see God appoints King Jehu to be his avenger and to execute his vengeance. Second, we're going to see God's avenger Jehu punish Israel's king. That'll be in verses 14 through 26. Third, we're going to see God's avenger will punish Judah's king in verses 27 through 29. And then fourth, God's avenger will punish Jezebel in verses 30 through 37. And just so you know, there are gonna be many phases of punishment as we move beyond chapter nine and into chapter 10. So first up, God appoints a king to execute vengeance in verses one through 13. Our passage begins with the prophet Elisha sending out one of the sons of the prophets to, to go to Ramoth-Gilead and to anoint Jehu. And this deputized prophet is given some very specific instructions. He's, he's to anoint Jehu to be king of Israel. And as soon as the task is finished, he's to beat feet out of there, right? Probably because it was anticipated to be a very, very risky assignment. So he's to anoint him and get out of there. So the prophet makes his way to Ramoth Gilead where commander Jehu is meeting with various captains from Israel's army. Now it's, it's, it's worth pausing for just a moment and, and remembering why Israel's army is at Ramoth Gilead. Joram, the king of Israel, had led his military to Ramoth Gilead to fight against Hazael, the king of Syria. And you'll remember during that battle, Joram was wounded and he went back to Jezreel to recover. Shortly after that, the king of Judah, Ahaziah, who happened to be Joram's nephew, keep that in your mind, went to Jezreel to offer moral support. So this is what I want you to have floating around in that gray matter. Jehu, and Israel's military, they're still at Ramoth-Gilead, while both the kings of Israel and Judah are in Jezreel. And as a sort of teaser, don't forget Jezreel is where Naboth's vineyard was. Well, the young prophet arrives. He enters the home. He sees the military leaders. And he says, I've got a message for you. Specifically, I've got a message for you, Jehu. So he and Jehu go somewhere in the house that's that's private, just as the prophet had been instructed, and we're told there in verse six that he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord over Israel. And then Jehu, God's Avenger, is given a summary of his task in the first part of verse seven. You shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master. Now it's going to become clear that Ahab was keenly aware of the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, and he had been for a very long time. But still, this must have been shocking He he was sitting there with, with these other military officers, likely discussing battle plans, thinking about strategy, when all of a sudden a prophet shows up and says, Yahweh has said you're now the king. Shocking that God would raise this king up from nowhere. But you know, Psalm 75, Psalm 75 anticipates this exact kind of event. Psalm 75 is a psalm that is is basically a psalm that praises and thanks God for his judgment upon the wicked. And I want you to listen to verses 6 and 7. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts one down and he exalts another. In other words, God will raise up to exercise his judgment, the man of his own choosing. In this case, God will exalt Jehu to put down the entire house of Ahab in 2 Kings 9 and 10. To that end, the prophet begins to explain to Jehu why Yahweh is promoting him not only to king, but to be chief avenger. In part, it's to avenge the blood of the prophets and the other faithful servants that have been slain for, for decades under the rule of Ahab and Jezebel. You, you'll want to remember, and this is an important detail, that those two, Ahab and Jezebel, they wanted to promote Baalism in the northern kingdom. And, and, and they would stop at nothing to see Baal promoted. And they killed and killed, and they killed God's prophets, all the while supporting hundreds and hundreds of prophets of Baal at their own table. Think about that, Israel's paying taxes to support the prophets of Baal. And now, Jehu is tasked to destroy every male from Ahab's family line, whether they hold positions of prominence in the kingdom or are the lowliest servant they're to be executed. And glance here at verse 10 because we're given a specific prophecy in regards to Jezebel. She gets special attention in this text. The dog shall eat Jezebel on the plot of ground at Jezreel and there shall be none to bury her. And of course the prophet having Communicated that final bit of information, he did just what he was told. He got out of there as quickly as possible. Well, having heard his marching orders from the prophet, Jehu goes back into the group of military leaders and, and you can tell <laughs> that these military leaders didn't think too highly of God's prophet. You can tell that by the way they posed the question to Jehu is all well. Why did this madman come to you? <laughs> it's, it's amazing in redemptive history that people who speak the word of God truthfully are often thought to be madman, right? We preach Christ crucified, foolishness, foolishness to the world. Well, they want to know why this madman had come and Jehu initially played along with their insolence and said, yeah, you you know those prophets. They they can be a bunch of babblers always going on about something. But but the officers officers saw right through Jehu, probably because they saw and could smell the anointing oil on Jehu. And unless he had immediate access to a shower, he, he would have still had oil poured down over his head, over his clothes, and it was a very fragrant oil. So they would have seen it, they would have smelled it. And so they're not buying it. Jehu, tell us the truth. Tell us what the prophet said to you. Well, this is what he said. Thus says the Lord, I've anointed you king over Israel. And I suspect the reason there was some initial hesitation with Jehu to, to, to just openly say this to the men is that he didn't know how they would respond he perhaps thought that they would pull out daggers and run him through I mean this was technically treason but that wouldn't happen he didn't understand God's providence was working these things out exactly according to God's word and so what happened is the men laid their cloak on the steps before Jehu signifying they would submit to his authority as Israel's king and they blew the trumpet and they announced Jehu is king. And with that trumpet blast, dear ones, God has appointed a king in Israel to execute his vengeance. Now we need to pause here for just a moment. First, because this passage teaches us something about our God. Namely, that he's a God of justice. And one of the things that means is that God will take vengeance on those who mistreat his children. It may take a while, but God will avenge his servants. Years have passed since those prophets were slain at the hand of Jezebel And, and years have passed since Naboth was murdered because Ahab wanted his vineyard. Probably memories have been lost of the prophets and memories lost of Naboth, but God hasn't forgotten this wickedness. To be sure, God is long suffering, He's incredibly patient with sinners giving them time to repent, but he doesn't forget. And he'll exercise vengeance on his enemies and the enemies of his servants. And this is an aspect of God's character we don't want to overlook. We sort of touched on this this morning, but God hears the pleading of his people when they suffer at the hands of wicked men and God will avenge them in his time, and his purposes, but he will avenge his people. And this is something that God's people have cried out for throughout redemptive history. I want you to listen to an example of that kind of crying out from Psalm 94, verses 1 through 5. The psalmist says, O Lord, God of vengeance, O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth, repay to the proud what they deserve. O Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked exalt? They pour out their arrogant words, all the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. Rise up, O judge of the earth. You might recognize this as an imprecatory psalm, which is a psalm where God's people are pleading for justice. They're pleading for God to destroy their enemies. And in Psalm 94, did you notice Yahweh is identified as a God of vengeance for his people? And the psalmist is crying out, arise, shine forth in all your just, holy and avenging majesty. In 2 Kings 9, when Jehu was raised up to be Yahweh's avenger, this teaches us something about God's character. He is a God of justice and he will avenge those who unjustly harm his servants. A second thing we learn in this open section and this, excuse me, in this opening section, and this might be something of a surprise to you, is that Jehu is a type of Christ. Not in the way we often think about types of Christ because we have a rather limited view of Christ, but Jehu surely foresignifies God's greater king, King Jesus, who will come to be the full and final avenger from heaven when he comes to judge the living and the dead. And like in Psalm 94, his coming will be a comfort for God's people. And we did hear that this morning, didn't we? In 2 Thessalonians? Listen again to 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9. Again, we heard this this morning, but, but it's reflected here. It says, it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest with us When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. One of the reasons it's important to see Jehu as a type of Christ and his vengeance as a a type of Christ who judges and conquers sin is because there are a great many uh, Bible scholars, some somewhat contempor- uh, conservative Bible scholars, who get really squeamish about Jehu's violence. And he is going to put violence on display. But we need to understand comparing the God appointed vengeance of Jehu to the eternal vengeance of Christ. That's like comparing a lightning bug to the sun. There is no comparison, no comparison. Yes, Jehu will execute swift violence on a particular group of grave idolaters, but when Christ returns, it's going to be cataclysmic destruction and eternal vengeance. Jehu's a type of Christ who'll judge the living in the dead. So God appointed King Jehu to execute his vengeance And that brings us to our second heading where we see in verses 14 through 26 that God's avenger will punish Israel's king. Excuse me. And Jehu is shrewd and he knows he's gonna have to have a comprehensive plan. So he's conspiring. He wants to get to Joram in Jezreel Before Joram can realize what's happening. And so there actually at the end of verse 15, he says to his military leaders, look, if if you're with me, and and you've already indicated that you're with me, but if you're with me, then we need to act quickly. And we need to make sure nobody gets to Jezreel before we do. We don't want anyone to get there and warn him. And without a, a moment of hesitation, Jehu was in his chariot and driving to Jezreel. Now, Jezreel, again, I printed a little map for you in your bulletin if you want to sort of get some traction on the the geography. But Jezreel was about 40 miles or so due west of Ramoth-Gilead. So this was quite a ride in a chariot. And there were no electric powering stations on the way. So he had to use that one horse for the whole trip. Now, as you can imagine, he's making this journey. It's got to be ruminating all these things. And then we're told as, as he gets close, closer and closer, that there's a watchman standing in the post of the tower of the castle. And he sees this company of men. And at first, all the watchman was sure of is that it was a large group of soldiers approaching. He doesn't seem to know initially that it's Jehu, just that there are soldiers riding feverishly to get there. So Joram, he sends out a rider to go figure out what's going on and to ask these approaching soldiers, is it peace? Do, do you come in peace? And at this point, it's, it seems that, that Joram assumes these are his soldiers from Ramoth-Gilead and what he's actually inquiring in terms of peace has to do with the battle in Ramoth-Gilead. Are they victorious or are they defeated? And it'll become clear in a moment why I say that. But when the writer approached and he asked the question in verse 18, thus says the king, is it peace? Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn around and follow me. Now, it seems here what Jehu meant is if you want shalom, it's following me, not Joram. If you want peace, you'll fall in line and join the Lord's army. And all this was happening under the watchful eye of the the watchman who, who lays out what was happening to Joram. Again, I still don't think they knew it was Jehu at this point, just Just that the first messenger had fallen behind this group of soldiers. And incidentally, the fact that their messenger fell in line behind the soldiers probably caused Joram not to be too alarmed because he would have likely assumed if these were enemies, they would have slain him or there would have been something to indicate hostility. There was none of that. He just was right around. And so this is reported to Joram. And he says, well, send out another rider. Second verse, same as the first. Same exact event, same thing happens. Like the previous rider, he fell in behind Jehu. But then as the soldiers get closer, the, the watchman recognizes that the charioteer out front he's he's driving with a certain reckless abandonment and he says you know what that's how Jehu drives a chariot this probably tells us something about Jehu doesn't he 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 liked to live on the wild side this is the way he drove his chariot and now that he he knows that this is Jehu he he's going to go out and meet him meet him he, he, the king, Joram, was, was certainly curious, what's, what's going on? So he tells his staff, prepare a chariot for me. And Joram and his nephew, Ahaziah, again, the king of Judah, drive out to meet him. And now Joram asks the question that the other two riders had asked. Glance there at verse 22. When Joram saw Jehu, he said, is it peace, Jehu. Again, I think what Joram is inquiring here is about the status of the battle at Ramoth Gilead because he doesn't have a change of heart until Jeho goes on to say, what peace! As long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and the witchcraft are so many. Now Joram gets it. He realizes he's made a grave error and he turned to escape all the while being careful to warn his nephew, it's treachery, Ahaziah. But Jehu filled his hand with his bow. With all of his might, he pulled back the cord. He let his arrow fly. It entered Jorm's back and came out his heart. And listen what happened here wasn't treachery, it was justice. Joram had perpetuated the same spiritual harlotry that his mother Jezebel had introduced to Israel. And through her influence, pagan sorcery had become common in God's promised land, all of which is an abomination to Yahweh. And notice there's a divine irony that unfolds here. Jerem dies near the field that belonged to Naboth. Of course, it belonged to Naboth until his mother, Jezebel, murdered him. And we're given some added details here about Naboth's murder. Jezebel not only killed this man, she murdered his sons. She wiped out his family. She'll meet God's avenger soon enough. But it's worth pointing out that Jehu has been serving this dynasty for a long time. He and his servant Bidkar apparently were riding with Ahab when he received the prophecy from Elijah that Ahab's entire seed was gonna be wiped out because he allowed Jezebel to deal so treacherously with a faithful man of God. And Naboth, you'll remember from our study, was a faithful man of God. The reason he didn't want to sell his vineyard is because that was his covenant inheritance. And he didn't want to release that because he loved the Lord. And this was a gift the Lord had given him. And Naboth was murdered. And now God's avenging him. Well, Ahab's gone. Ahab's son, Joram, is gone. And God's avenger has punished Israel's king. That brings us to our third heading, found in verses 27 through 29. God's avenger will punish Judah's king. Ahaziah, the king of Judah, hadn't wasted any time fleeing after he was warned by Uncle Joram. He was on the road to Beth Hagon, which was just south of the Jezreel Valley, and Jehu commanded his men to fire on Ahaziah. And their arrows too found their target. And he was mortally wounded. He he changed direction, interestingly enough, and, and had his men take him to Megiddo, which is the place where he died. And then he was brought back to Jerusalem to be buried in the city of David. One of the questions you might have is, why did Jehu kill the king of Judah? And we sort of answered that last week. (laughs) Remember, the king of Judah's grandmother was Jezebel. And his mother was Athaliah. And and we're going to see in coming weeks, she was every bit the evil idolatry that her mom was. And ultimately we were told back in 2 Kings 8.27 that Ahaziah walked in the way of the house of Ahab and he did evil in the sight of the Lord like the house of Ahab for he was the son-in-law of the house of Ahab. In other words, Baal was being endorsed by the royal families in the north and the royal families in the south. And Jeho must have seen it as his responsibility to eliminate Baal worship wherever he found them. And we'll see that's exactly what he does. And one of the things we have to take away from this is how much God hates idolatry and false worship. Because that's why he's executing Ahab. Idolatry has been the sin corrupting Israel and eventually Judah throughout our study in 1st and 2nd Kings. It's the sin that Elijah and Elisha were most regularly addressing, put away bales, put away your idols and worship the true God truly. And after multiple warnings and even chastisements and countless offers to, to turn back to the Lord and be received and be reconciled, they spurned the Lord's kindness. And now God's unleashed It's avenger. And if we ever wonder how ferociously God will deal with idolaters, look at Joram and look at Ahaziah, both dead. And don't forget what a shocking moment this is in redemptive history. The king of Israel and the king of Judah are executed. By God's avenger. Now, Jehu's the new king of Israel, but what a remarkable moment in redemptive history. For a moment, there's no king in Judah. You have to wonder if the angels in heaven looked down and were silent, wondering what would happen next. Because God had made so many promises to and through. David, God will fulfill his promises. At first, his avenger is cleaning house. And again, in the execution of Joram and Ahaziah, we get a glimpse of Christ in and through Jehu. There could be no peace in Israel where sin, immorality, and idolatry reigned. No shalom where sin is embraced. God's people couldn't be at peace with him because sin creates hostility between God and man. And Jehud provided temporary peace, but it was only temporary It reminds us that ultimately God's people need a greater king who could appease God's hostility, establish real peace with God and reconcile us to God through the blood of the cross. And of course, that's what the Lord Jesus does. Peace is the fruit, dear ones, of our justification, of Jesus offering himself in our place as a wrath appeasing atonement. That's why we have peace with God. Paul put it this way in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll come back to Jezebel next week. Truth be told, we all deserve the same fate. Is Joram and Ahaziah. That's what you deserve, dear friend. We deserve to be pierced with the arrows of God's just judgment. That's what we have coming in and of ourselves. You see, that's the remarkable thing that Jesus did for us. We're, we're told this wonderful truth in Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we're healed. Oh, dear ones, won't you pause this evening And test, test to make sure you be in the faith, to make sure you're looking to this Jesus, this wrath-appeasing sacrifice who can grant us eternal shalom with our God. God sent him to do that for us. Believe on him and you'll be saved. Amen. Well, I'll give you a minute to uh, ask any questions, should you have any. As I said, next week we'll pick up with Jezebel. Jehu's got a lot of violence to do yet. (laughs) First of all, just a comment.
1: You said Nahu is a type of Christ. Yeah. In the sense that he's avenging God's justice. Yeah. Um, I just kind of. I've just been struck by the words of Nehu, like you said. He says, well, if you really want peace, repent and follow me. Yeah. And those are the words of Jesus. Yeah, it's it's yeah. just kind of ironic or whatever. So here's my question, though. Nehu was not given instructions by the prophet to kill the king of Judah. Was he? No. Okay, And I'm just struck by the fact that the Davidic Covenant has the line of David is going to be forever. And to me, he's kind of taken a liberty to kill the king of Judah. Not that he doesn't, in a sense, deserve it, but it wasn't under the instruction of God's prophet. So, are we going to get to, is that the rest of the story later,
0: or what? That's a great question, and I will tell you there are some really great scholars who chastise Jehu for that. I, I don't follow that, but it's it's a legitimate way to think because he's not given that task. But if you turn to chapter 10, 2 Kings 10, do 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 Just to interject too, I
1: mean, David didn't kill Saul because he said, that's God's anointing. I can't... Yeah. And
0: so that's what, it's just striking me that, to me, he's overstepping his bounds in a sense. Uh, I'll start in verse 28, because this is sort of a postscript to Jehu's reign. Verse 28, thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, golden calves that were in Bethel and Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and you've done to the house of Ahab, according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne, but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law. Here's here's where I'm going. Here's why I think he was justified in doing it. First off, the Lord never chastises him for it. And the truth is, Ahaziah was from the house of Ahab. His grandmother was Jezebel, so so he was. I mean, so that's why I kind of disagree with the scholars who go that route. Um, but there are people who take that, and again, in Hosea one, it speaks about you know uh, Jehu um, being punished because of uh, the bloodshed in. Uh, Jezreel. But I think that's because he went back to worshiping golden calves, but that, that's another story. But that's a, a legitimate way to see it. But as I said, I, I, and I kind of drove this point home last week. At this point in redemptive history, To be sure, Judah had the covenant promises, but there was almost no difference between Judah and Israel. They were both under the reign of Baal and Ahab, and and their families were even united together. Again, this is something I mentioned last week. It's interesting. Ahab named his next two sons Ahaziah and Joram. Jehoshaphat named his two sons Jehoram and Ahaziah. So the king of Judah and the king of Israel, they're naming their kids the same thing, and they're marrying them. Huh? Yeah. So I, I think that's why, that's why I think he was appropriate in doing it. So, that's, But it's, yeah.
1: It says at verse 28, they buried him in the tomb of his fathers in the city of David. There's other kings that did evil that they would bury him in the city of David, but not in the tombs of their fathers. And I'm just wondering... Because this guy was evil, as I was evil, why they
0: did bury him in the tombs? It doesn't say that too in the parallel passage in Second uh, Chronicles twenty-one. I don't recall reading anything of substance, but you're right. Typically, if, if the kings in Judah would still be given the honor of being buried in the city of David, but not in these particular tombs, right? But yeah, I, I'm not sure. There's, and I, I can't think of an explanation for it. So. This, Brother Todd said, Jehu was not a man of God. He may have been Christ's avenger in a sense, but he didn't follow. He wasn't a faithful man in the end. He worshipped and didn't take down the golden calves and day and dan and that. Yeah, it it's he, he's a mixed bag because as I said, you know, I don't know if you notice, but the Lord commends him in a special way. Da, 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 da. Where is it? Because you've done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to the all that was in my heart. <laughs> so Jehu was doing what was in the heart of the Lord. Again, he he goes he ends badly, but you know he doesn't end as badly as Solomon does. <laughs> I, it, you know it's uh yeah it. I, I'm not going to get in. I can't get into the, I guess he's saved, not saved. That's a, a question that we really can't answer. What we can say for sure is God was using him and all the violence with Ahab. But I always thought there was not a good king in Israel. Well, he, again, he doesn't end well, as you said. So he's He's the closest. In fact, if you look at like charts that have kings of Judah and kings of Israel often under Jehu it'll say good bad Um, because that's kind of what he did and and we're gonna see as we move forward he's he does some things that where he seems to be really zealous for the honor of Yahweh not you know he's not like yay I get to do all this violence and that's kind of dude I'm wired wired to be anyway so no I mean he really seems to be someone who's you know... Me. but Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel with all of his heart. He did not turn from, I mean, you know he did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. I know we're, I'm saying the same thing you are, but I, I think... I think God used him for all of those purposes, but questionable about it. Yeah, I, I, one, one of the things... One of the things I won't say is, you know, be like Jehu. That's, you know, I mean, he's he's not an example for us. For for one thing, none of us are God's appointed avenger. You know, um, but but it, but it's interesting. I, when we get to Jezebel, we'll even see this connection more closely in terms of the Lord being the final avenger. Because what He does to Jezebel, I think, is really Presented to us in Revelation 19, and I'll come back to that. But again, he, yeah, he's he's a sinner for sure. So, huh? Yeah, yeah but definitely. but he, he could drive. He, what did he call that? The Tokyo Drift, or was it what's it called? You know, <laughs> on the chariot, <laughs> mad skills for sure. <laughs> Were you gonna? I have a
1: question. So, kind of, what,
0: um continuing that
1: conversation of, you know, he wasn't righteous at all, and. And but yet, God honors him in the text, and and it seems analogous to me of um, Jacob and Esau. You know, uh, was one more nobler than the other? You know, and yet Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, and maybe, um, you know, obviously like like you just said, we can't, we don't know if who was
0: saved, who wasn't. And, and uh, here's something you, you just said that I won't say at any point in this stu- study: Jehu is righteous, right? Because. His work is righteous in so much as he's doing what the Lord told him to do. But, yeah.
1: It reminds me a lot of Joab. You know, I was, I was number one Joab fan club until you get to Solomon and then he betrays yeah. David's line and he goes over with Solomon's brother What's his face. So, you
0: know. By the way, since we're chapter 10, if your Bibles are open, look, this is worth just sort of sort of having as a teaser. This is, this is Athaliah. Again, talking about the house of Ahab being in Judah, chapter 11. Now, when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. So you know what this gal's doing, right? She's intentionally trying to kill the Davidic seed, which means she is most definitely an agent of Satan. So again, that's why I go back to, yeah, yeah. God, I think God was cleaning house in Judah and Israel at this point, so. But. Any other questions, comments? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for difficult passages that present us with hard truths. And um, Having read through this and thought about your purpose to avenge your people and to bring wrath upon idolaters we are so thankful for the Lord Jesus to know that your justice has been satisfied and in him your people never fear condemnation because that once for all sacrifice satisfied all your wrath and now we are men and women who can never Ever be separated from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Bless us with hearts that are filled with that truth as we go from here. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen. Let me ask you to stand, brothers and sisters, to receive the Lord's benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And all of God's people said, Amen.